She will be joining the MFM family at UCF, UCSF this summer. Welcome, Dr. Fabian. Thank you for having me. Sal, what I'd like to talk about today is the ins and outs of thyroid disease in pregnancy. When I was a resident in training, I felt like following people with well-controlled thyroid disease, disease was pretty easy. But now that I've been out in practice, there are patients who um, aren't well-controlled, and they can present a challenge. And I also have all these patients requesting thyroid screening as part of their new OB panel, patients taking things like Armour Thyroid and Nature Thyroid, which I didn't even know anything about when I was in residency. And so that's really where I'd like to get today um, is into the nuances, and I'm sure you can really help with that. Absolutely. Thyroid disorders are among some of the most common endocrinopathies in young women of childbearing age. In large areas of the world, actually, iodine deficiency is actually the predominant cause of these disorders. However, in a place like the U.S., um, they are most often related to altered immunity. Now, I know that ACOG does not recommend screening all women for thyroid disease in pregnancy. Despite that, I have lots of moms who had a a BFF, their cousin, their own mother, their mother's neighbor, you know, someone got checked for thyroid disease in their first trimester at their new OB visit, and my patient wants the same thing. Can you tell us why um, they don't recommend screening, and who are the patients whom you would screen? Yeah, so universal screening of asymptomatic pregnant women for hypothyroidism during the first trimester is pretty controversial, um, and there's a wide variation of screening practices. Um, the results of a recent observational studies have really suggested that testing of thyroid function only in women at high risk for thyroid or other autoimmune diseases will actually miss up to a third of women with subclinical um, or overt hypothyroidism. However, a lot of these more pro newer prospective trials have shown that really universal screening compared to really just targeted approaches of where you only screen at-risk people didn't actually improve pregnancy outcomes. So as an example, in one of these trials, they took about 4,500 women in their first trimester of pregnancy and randomized them to either be universally screened or just, you know, case-finding groups or the high-risk groups. All these patients in the universal screening group and all of the high-risk patients um, were tested for T4, TSH, and TPO, or antithyroid peroxidase antibody levels in their first trimester. The majority of the women in the low-risk group were actually euthyroid, so around 98% when there was only about 2% found to be hypothyroid and only 0.2% were noted to actually be hyperthyroid. But what was interesting here was that there was actually no difference in the case finding and universal screening groups when it came to adverse perinatal outcomes. However, there is a small limited body of evidence that does suggest that universal screening may actually be more cost-effective than not screening at all. Um, and that some studies have even suggested that for every 100,000 women who are screened, that about approximately $8 million can be saved um, to improve neonatal outcomes, mainly in the form of reduced sort of neurodevelopmental impairments. Nonetheless, 
because of insufficient evidence to support universal TSH screening in the first trimester. Most professional societies, including the American Thyroid Association, the Endocrine Society, and ACOG actually recommend really targeted case finding rather than universal screening. So in general, what we recommend here um, is that targeted approach to screening. So we favor screening pregnant women if they are from an area of moderate to severe iodine insufficiency or really have symptoms of hypothyroidism, a family history or a personal history of thyroid disease or a personal history of being TPO antibody positive, those moms who are, who are type 1 diabetics, or moms who may have a history of head and neck radiation, recurrent miscarriages, or are morbidly, morbidly obese or have a history of infertility. So in those women who meet actual screening criteria, we recommend actually just starting off by measuring the TSH only in the first trimester. And if that TSH is normal, then really no further testing is needed. If the TSH is really greater than 2.5, a free T4 should be drawn and determine really what the degree of the hypothyroidism is at that point. Wow, that was really fantastic information. <clears throat> now, I'd like to talk about thyroid replacement for those women who are found to have overt hypothyroidism. I'd like you to touch on how to find a starting dose um, and then comment on some of those medications like um, Nature Throid or these other things that we encounter uncommonly. Yeah, this can be pretty confusing for anybody, really, physicians, practitioners, or really patients in general. So all women um, who are newly diagnosed overt hypothyroids, meaning those women who have a TSH above trimester-specific norms, and those are the low, TS, low T4, should be treated with thyroid hormone. Um, in addition, because maternal euthyroidism is potentially important for normal fetal cognitive development, we suggest really treatment of pregnant women with subclinical hypothyroidism as well, or in other words, those women whose TSH is above a trimester-specific norm, but maybe their T4 is actually um, normal, really regardless of their TPO antibody status. The American Thyroid Association guidelines recommend treatment of pregnant women with subclinical hypothyroidism and positive TPO antibodies. However, the American Thyroid Association found really insufficient evidence to recommend for or against treating women with subclinical and negative TPO, but we go ahead and treat them regardless. Okay. Therefore, it's probably appropriate to discuss the uncertainty, though, as well, of the potential benefits of treatment with TPO antibody-negative patients, especially if your patient has a TSH between 2.5 and 3. We don't recommend, though, treating a pregnant woman with isolated hypothyroxinemia, or in other words, those patients that have a low T4, but a normal TSH. Now, the treatment of choice, again, is for the correction of hypothyroidism, is to give pregnant women the same thing that you would give non-pregnant women, which is synthetic T4. There are several formulations available, and because of the subtle differences in really the bioavailability between these different T4 formulations, we really suggest sort of sticking with one type if possible and kind of going with that. The goal of the T4 replacement is really to restore the mom to be euthyroid as soon as possible. Patients who have moderate to severe or low hypothyroidism should be started on close to actually full replacement dosing, which translates to about 1.6 micrograms per kilograms of body weight per day. Patients whose TSH though are around less than 10 can actually be started on a lower dose, around 1.0 micrograms of kilogram body weight per day. And the TSH at that point really should be measured about every four weeks during the first half of pregnancy because of the dose adjustments that are really often required when you're starting patients off on meds. Now for those women who have pre-existing hypothyroidism and who are planning to become pregnant, 
honestly, the best time to really optimize their medication is in that preconception period if you happen to catch them, um, with the goal of the TSH really being less than 2.5. About 50 to 85% of women with pre-existing hypothyroidism actually need a lot more T4 during pregnancy. Therefore, it's really not uncommon to preemptively just increase a woman's levothyroxine dose by approximately 30% preconceptually. This can typically be accomplished by increasing the dose from once daily dosing to a total of nine doses per week. Or in other words, you double the daily dose two days per week. Another approach is, of course, to measure the TSH as soon as they become pregnant and then to repeat it four weeks later and adjust accordingly. Lastly, for patients who are taking those other types of thyroid medications, such as desiccated thyroid or T4-T3 combinations, which are commonly referred to as armor thyroid or nature thyroid, we prefer actually just switching them to T4 or levothyroxine. We really prefer this because of various studies that have demonstrated that one gram of that desiccated thyroid extract can really result in various T4 equivalencies, ranging anywhere from 74 micrograms to 100 micrograms. So if you're planning to switch someone over, then we, this really the simplest conversion is that really one grain is equal to 100 micrograms of T4. And of course, for those patients who refuse to switch to T4, and as long as they are asymptomatic and their thyroid function tests are normal, it is probably safe for them to continue to take the thyroid prefer preparations that they prefer. Wow, that was really fantastic information. I hope our listeners have their pens and paper out so they can make notes on how to start someone on thyroid and then converting them, because um, that was really helpful. And then remember, like you touched on, all of our well-control patients are going to have their TSH checked every trimester. And then if, as soon as we're adjusting medications, we're going to check those every four weeks. Now, I know the norms for TSH are different in pregnancy. In fact, I keep those tacked up onto a bulletin board in my office. But can you tell us where to find that information or, or which norms to use? Because I know if you look on the internet or different um, societies' websites, it might tell you something different. So what do you recommend using as norms for each trimester? Yeah, absolutely. So because of the changes that we know happen in thyroid physiology in pregnancy, the guideline of the American Thyroid Association for the Diagnosis and Management of Thyroid Disease During Pregnancy and Postpartum, it's a mouthful, <laughs> recommends using trimester-specific reference ranges, as you um, said. Um, really, most commercial laboratories will provide these reference ranges to you when they print out their reports, but if they don't, um, first trimester range is between 0.1 and 2.5, second trimester is between 0.2 and 3, and then the third trimester is between 0.3 and 3. Excellent. Okay, try putting that on your front door. The guidelines of the American Thyroid Association for the Diagnosis and Management of Thyroid Disease During Pregnancy and Postpartum. It's a mouthful, you're right. Okay, let's talk about hyperthyroid disease. Can you review some of the same information you did for hypothyroid in pregnancy? Yeah, absolutely. So overt hyperthyroidism, meaning low TSH and a very high T4 and our T3, is actually pretty uncommon during pregnancy and it only occurs in about 0.1 to 0.4% of all pregnancies. Although hyperthyroidism may be a cause and can complicate pregnancies, Graves' disease and actually HCG-mediated hyperthyroidism are the most common causes of hypothyroidism in the U.S. Graves' disease usually is because of less, is less severe during the later stages of pregnancy due to the reduced TSH receptors. Um, and HCG-mediated hyperthyroidism can occur transiently in the first half of gestation and is typically less severe, actually, than Graves'. Women suspected based on their symptoms or pregnancy complications should be tested for hyperthyroidism nonetheless. The diagnosis of hyperthyroidism during pregnancy should be based on the findings of a suppressed or even undetectable TSH value, 
usually less than 0.01. If the TSH is less than 0.01 or is, um, is discovered, then really the, traditionally a free T4 level should be drawn. And if at that point the free T4 level is normal, um, then a free T3 can be, should be drawn as well. In the event that the free thyroid hormone levels are discordant with the serum TSH and, clinical, and there are clinical findings, a total T4 at that point can then be measured. Remember that TSH in healthy pregnant women during the first trimester can be even as low as 0.02 to 0.03 to 0.1. Most pregnant women with hypothyroidism have incredibly low TSH values and very high T4 and or T3. So once the diagnosis of hypothyroidism is established, the cause should really be determined next in the step. The primary objective at this point really is to differentiate, does my patient have Graves' disease or does she have HCG-mediated hypothyroidism? Or is it a potentially more rare cause? Although the clinical symptoms, of course, we know are very similar, the presence of a goiter or lymphopathy on exam favors Graves. Goiters are not usually classically seen in HCG-mediated diseases. In situations where the diagnosis is uncertain, you can draw a thyrotropin receptor antibody um, using a third-generation thyrotropin binding inhibiting assay. You're going to need to call the lab for this because it's very specific and you're not <laughs> going to find it on any EMR okay, to order. Okay, yes. Um, the TSH receptor antibodies are actually in, are positive in 95% of patients with Graves' disease, so it can be a very useful tool if you're not really sure what the diagnosis is. Remember that the use of thyroid radionucleotide imaging is contraindicated in pregnancy and that treatment of HCG-mediated disease is typically transient and doesn't actually require any treatment at all. The treatment options, though, for women with Graves or other types of nodular thyroid disease is limited, however, in pregnancy because of the harmful effects of the fetus. Overall, the goal of treatment is really to reduce the maternal serum T4 concentrations to be in that kind of higher normal range level. Um, that you would typically see in a non-pregnant woman using the lowest drug dose possible. The Endocrine Society and the American Thyroid Association have published clinical guidelines for this management. Thionamines are the primary treatment of hypothyroidism due to Graves during pregnancy. The two most common drugs that we use are PTU and methimazole. Both PTU and methimazole cross the placenta and have pretty similar effects on the fetus. In general, though, we recommend that PTU be limited to only the first trimester. Um, and this is really to minimize the risk of hypothyroidism to the fetus. We give actually the lowest dose of PTU, which is around 50 milligrams of BID or TID, unless there is evidence of really just overt severe hypothyroidism, then we would give them a full dose of PTU, which is around 100 milligrams TID. Although the teratogenic effects of methimazole are not really well proven, they are potentially very serious and are likely confined to the first trimester during organogenesis. So once the first trimester is completed, um, we traditionally will transition patients from PTU to methimazole. And when we do that, typically you, the conversion is such that around 300 milligrams of PTU is about equivalent to around 10 to 15 milligrams of methimazole. The same monitoring rules apply here in which you would monitor thyroid functions about every four weeks. And ultimately, again, you want the lowest dose possible um, to achieve your effect. So by the end, usually most women are anywhere between two and a half to five milligrams of methimazole, and about up to a third of women actually don't even need medication by their third trimester. Um, you can use things like beta blockers as well, but remember beta blockers are really just there to treat for symptoms such as tachycardia or tremors. Um, but we really try to limit the long-term treatment of beta blockers because we know that there is a decent body of evidence out there that shows that long-term use 
of beta blockers increases a mom's risk of having a growth restricted fetus. Um, and then lastly, of course, thyroidectomy during pregnancy, though really rarely necessary, is an option for women who just can't tolerate any kind of medication. Wow, that was a fantastic review of hyperthyroidism. Okay, one other topic that I'd like to touch on is thyroid disease in the postpartum woman. I get a lot of questions here as well. Um, I have moms that come in requesting blood counts and, and TSH because they're tired all the time. Now, for some reason, they don't attribute this to their lack of sleep, their interrupted <laughs> sleep patterns, the increased yeah. stress of caring for another person's survival. They want to blame their thyroid. But I know that some thyroid conditions do occur in the postpartum period. So can you talk to us about how to screen for those problems and then an overview of maybe thyroid function in the postpartum period? Yeah, definitely. So autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, really is exacerbated in that postpartum period. So new onset, actually, autoimmune thyroid disease can actually occur in up to 10% of postpartum women. And there you can even see higher rates to close to 25% in moms who are type 1 diabetics as well. Um, and that really occurs mostly in women also who have a history of potentially having had a history of postpartum thyroiditis in a previous pregnancy, or women who have a known positive TPO antibody level as well. Um, so postpartum thyroiditis can occur after a pregnancy loss or it can even occur after a normal delivery. There are really two patterns of postpartum dysfunction. Um, first one is really just postpartum thyroiditis and the second one is really postpartum exacerbation of just sort of a chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis or Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Postpartum thyroiditis, when we just look at that, is more like a transient hypothyroidism. While postpartum exacerbations are actually more characteristic of a postpartum um, sort of autoimmune destruction that we're seeing of the thyroid gland. We actually agree with the Endocrine Society that women at the highest risks for developing postpartum thyroiditis are those women, such as type 1 diabetics, should actually have a serum TSH measured around three to six months after postpartum. If that TSH is abnormal, then we would recommend repeating the TSH along with the free T4 and a T3 level in about one to two weeks. It's not unreasonable to manage these patients yourself or refer them to endocrinology when in general practice. Wonderful. Okay, we don't have much time left on our podcast, but in the last few minutes, I'd like to just get your thoughts or any words of wisdom you have for our audience before you leave the university on thyroid disease and pregnancy. Yeah, so I think one of the things we don't talk too much about um, is how to identify and what to do in the event of thyroid storm. So thyroid storm is rare, thankfully, but potentially it can be very fatal. Um, to the mom and to the baby. And we can see that in the sense that we can see cardiovascular collapse, um, cardi failure, um, ner central nervous system failure, and things such, a, such as that. Thyroid storm actually occurs in about 1-2% to 2 of pregnancies um, and usually occurs in moms who have hyper underlying overt hyperthyroidism. Um, this rare but potentially devastating complication is usually seen in patients who are not very well controlled on their medications and have un really kind of associated underlying physiological stressors, stressors, such as, you know, they have choreo, they have undergone recent surgery, they have a recent DVT, they're having, they're undergo been diagnosed with preeclampsia or preterm labor. Um, the diagnosis can actually be pretty difficult, and it's really that lack or that delay in diagnosis that puts you, gets you into trouble, and you can find that your patient may end up being in shock or in a coma um, pretty quickly. So the laboratory profile of moms with thyroid storm is really that you will see profound leukocytosis, really profound elevation of hepatic enzymes, and occasionally hypocalcemia as well. The thyroid function test results really um, aren't actually always consistent with hypothyroidism, but nonetheless, if you suspect 
hypothyroidism, you should go ahead and treat them for that. Or if you suspect thyroid storm, you should treat them for that. The management is really best accomplished by having these patients be in like an ICU setting. Because really the goal is that you want to reduce the synthesis and the release of thyroid hormone. You really want to remove thyroid hormone from circulation in the mom. And you want to block that conversion from T4 to T3. Um, and probably the most important fact is that you want to identify and treat what these precipitating factors were that caused the mom to go into thyroid sore. Fantastic. Well, that was really important. Um, Dr. Fabian, again, I want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today and um, really giving this expert opinion to our audience and providing us with the best evidence um, on thyroid disease. Can you summarize some of the most important points for us today? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the most important things to remember is that because of the changes in thyroid physiology during normal pregnancy, thyroid function tests should be interpreted really using trimester-specific TSH and T4 reference ranges for pregnant women. If your lab doesn't provide you those trimester-specific ranges, then it's actually pretty easy to remember. Remember, first trimester is 0.1 to 2.5, second trimester is 0.2 to 3, and then the third trimester is 0.3 to 3. So if you think about the lower limit of the range, it's kind of in changes with the trimester, and the upper limit of the range is all you really need to quote-unquote memorize. It's either 2.5 or 3. Total T4 and T3 levels during pregnancy are typically 1.5 folds higher than that of non-pregnant women. And the reference ranges for 4T4 um, are really method-specific, so your lab will actually give you those results. Also remember that universal screening of asymptomatic women is very controversial, so really try and just screen women who are at risk for hypothyroidism. Um, additionally, all women with newly diagnosed hypothyroidism should be treated with T4. Lastly, with regards to treatment of women who are hyperthyroid, remember that treatment is first in the first trimester is with PTU, and then you switch these ladies over to methimazole in their second and third trimester. Fantastic. That was a wonderful um, podcast and a lot of really good information. And again, Dr. Fabian, I appreciate you so much being with us today. Well, that's all we have for you today. If you would like a copy of the transcript from today's podcast or if you have comments or questions, please email me at katie-smith at ouhsc.edu. That's k-a-t-i-e-s-m-i-t-h at ouhsc.edu. Stay tuned for further podcasts from the Department of OBGYN here at the University of Minnesota.